0: The section that we're going over here today is Key Tavo, Ki Tavo, which covers uh, Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 1 goes through chapter 29, verse 8, and today we heard from a couple of uh, parallel passages, one from Isaiah chapter 60, and also Matthew uh, 13, and we'll be taking a look at that primarily here today. So, Some things to look at as we, you know, you could say looking up at a 50,000 foot level before we go down here further and take a look at this, is that some of what you see here, especially related to the blessings and the curses, is it's one of those things that we see what happens to us when things are stripped away. And that's also what's underlying the parable of the sower as well, which is why that's a great parallel passage to be combining here with Kitavo and the description at length of the blessings and the curses here to the second generation. And I hope you caught that little aspect where I mentioned, today you became a people. Well, wait a minute. Weren't they already people? Weren't they a people when they were called? Wasn't this the same group, the descendants of which came from Avraham? when he originally got that call out of Mesopotamia saying, hey, I'm going to show you a land and this is where you're going to go. And then to all of the descendants, Yitzhak, Yaakov, then Yaakov's sons. I mean, weren't they all called to be a people? So this thing of saying today you've become a people, That's why this idea has come throughout the centuries of this being a rebirth, which goes back to John chapter 3, when Yeshua is having a conversation with Nicodemus. And he says, hey, you're Israel's teacher, and you don't know that a person has to be reborn? This is the rebirth of Israel. I usually say, one of the rebirths of Israel. And you see the the picture of it talked about both in this particular passage in Kitavo and also in Isaiah chapter 60, which is where you see another foretelling of a reboot of Israel, that yes, this remnant is something that is talked about throughout Israel's history. The remnant. The remnant that would go into the land. The remnant of what came before Now, the first generation just wholly died off, but as we've seen throughout the book of Numbers, that wasn't the entire first generation, only a certain subset. What subset was that specifically? Those who were fit to fight, you could say of draft age is what we would say in modern parlance. Basically, those were the people who could have fought, be a part of the Lord's army going into the promised land, but said, no, can't do it. And I hope you saw in the blessings and curses kind of shades of that first generation's encounter. You saw shades of the plagues of Egypt, about the, the, the things that would come down upon you that you thought were going to hit you in Egypt. All of those things will come down upon you if you decide, uh, no, I'm not going to follow the instructions of the one who led us out of the house of bondage and is now leading us into the land of freedom, the land of rest. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to kind of cook up my own way or maybe take a look and see what those people are doing in there and kind of make a nice little spiritual smoothie and kind of whiz up something a little bit here, a little there, here a little, there a little, line upon line. Yeah, I hope you kind of catch that reference to another prophetic passage of a generation of Israel that was doing just the same thing. They didn't want to stick to the words of God, so they were just pulling here, there, and eventually the words of God just became blah, 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 or Yada, yada, yada. I know, I know, I know. Okay, yeah, we heard heard that we're far removed from the horrifically bad kind of description of things, but what we see, rather, is no, it is we're not that far removed. We might think that we have a veneer, a veneer of separation, but really, no, no, we're not. It's one of those things that... uh, that we actually have our brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah in other countries, especially China. You know what they're praying for? They're praying for that we experience Deuteronomy 28. They're praying for us to experience Deuteronomy 28. The curses. Why? The parable of the sower. Remember the four types of land, hard path, rocky ground, thorny ground, good ground. We've lived with the good ground thinking, oh, that's all there is, but we don't realize that those other conditions of us are there. That thorny ground, specifically, the talks about the deceptiveness of wealth, those things that We say the conveniences of life they make us think oh we've got it all figured out but what is the description in the parable what do those things do choke they choke out the thing that heaven plants in the soil they choke that out the rocky soil what does that do we actually have an example of it around here we call it hard pan And if you dig down, depending on where you are here in in Sonoma County, uh, you dig down and it's at a certain depth in certain places. I know it's two feet down in my backyard because you dig down any further than that, you're going to need a jackhammer to get through that because it's a level of gravel that it is like concrete to try to go any further through that. So much so that when I don't have to worry about irrigating our backyard, because when they irrigate the uh, land to the side of it, because of the slope, the water just goes right down, follows the hard pan right underneath our property. So you'd think, wow, we must water this place. No, because it's watered down to two feet, because the water just follows this like water on pavement flowing right under our house. So that is what this condition of the rocky ground is like. The things that God plants in us can only grow a certain amount because we have a hard pan within us. A place, that rocky soil, that the roots of which that are planted within us, the word of God gets started in us, but then it gets down to a certain level. And we see around here, we've got all these wonderful across the street. We've got vineyards out there. And one of the characteristics of the Russian River Valley is deep soil. And you'll see a lot of vineyards in this area. They are um, what they call, they're not irrigated. They are called dry farmed. Why? Because it goes down a long way before you hit that hard pan. So there are certain vineyards where they're, amount of soil moisture that they can accumulate throughout the year from the rains of the previous season will make it so that you don't have to water until you maybe go through the entire season, or maybe you can go throughout a good portion of the season. You only have to kind of juice it with some irrigation at certain points. But what happens if you dry farm it, you have a shallow topsoil, and then you get What happens around here? 115 degrees for eight days. What's going to happen to your crop without some serious intervention? Barbecued. And we've had some seasons like that where you've had some areas where it comes very hot, very long, And you run out of your own resources in the soil. The plant runs out of the resources. The ground runs out of the moisture. It's taken up as much as it can. And if you don't add more, do something else to intervene, it dies. It withers and dies. And that is also compared in the parable of the the, the sower to persecution, the things that come upon you to want to shake you out of your belief in God, to belief in the one who is sowing the seed within you. So you're just get that baked heat wave going on you. So what do you do at that point? You either to take this further to the illustrations that you have in the prophets. You pray for what rain? You pray for rain. You pray for the outpouring of the spirit of God to make up for what resources you do not have. And I hope you remember as we were going through those curses in there, they were saying, those big high walls in which you trusted, those are going to come down and leave you defenseless. You think that that is going to save you? No. No. You thought that that was going to prevent you from going into the land, and now you think those are going to save you? So be careful in the things that you put your trust in. So that's where we get a key point in this particular passage of Kitavo, that entering the promised land is like entering and living in the rest of God, which God gives us. So that's why when you read in the Apostolic Writings, Hebrews 3 and 4. Hebrews 3 is all about riffing on Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is kept saying, I swore in my wrath, you shall not enter my rest. And in context, enter my rest means enter the promised land. So when you then roll back the tape, what is Psalm 95 talking about? It's Exodus 17. What was that talking about? The people were without water. Where are we going to find water? So that question came up. This is Exodus 17. This is right after the Red Sea crossing. You know, you think Moses and the Ten Commandments, you know, lifts up the staff and, and there goes the, the sea opens up and the people go through and Moses holds his hands up again and, and the sea comes down and covers the Egyptian army that's pursuing And then the question comes up in exodus 17 is the lord with us or not now we sitting here with our bowl of popcorn watching this like a movie and go oh my goodness how could these dingleberries not understand what was what was happening now the red sea crossing that's exodus 15 so saw something massive happen, massive intervention from heaven into a world order that broke the back of one of the superpowers of the time period, which was Egypt. Egypt, in that time period, there was two axes, Egypt and the Hittite Empire, and they came to loggerheads quite often in what we call the Holy Land. And there fought lots and lots of wars back and forth. Uh, and eventually they had marriage, uh, marriage covenants between them where they married, they sent their daughters back and forth to have a marriage treaty. The ancient idea is that you wouldn't attack your relatives. <laughs> you wouldn't attack your in-laws. Or it was a sign of good faith. But so you saw that the Lord came down and broke the back of this superpower that was there, broke it, and allowed this people who were slaves, servants of one of those superpowers, Egypt, to then go through to safety. That's Exodus 15. Exodus 16 is about bread from heaven. They were hungry out there, lots of people out there in the desert. You need resupply. So what did heaven do? Bread from heaven. You're going to get bread every single day, six days a week. And on the sixth day, you're going to get twice as much. And it's going to keep you through the seventh day to you get around to the first day again. And then you will start back up again. Lesson, the Lord is the one who provides. And then you see that back when you get into the Gospels, you see that Yeshua says, hey, I'm the bread that came down from heaven and said also to people who knew Israel's history quite well, it's like the bread that the fathers ate, they ate it and they died in the desert. But there is this bread that comes down from heaven that if someone's going to eat, partake of that, they are not going to perish here because this bread of life is bringing through something that is going to make the person continue on. We call that eternal life. And eternal life, as explained later in the Gospel of John, is that they trust, they believe in the bread that came down from heaven. That that is truly what sustains you. You're not looking for your nearest In-N-Out Burger drive-through. You're looking for that which really sustains you. Whether there's your next meal or not your next meal, it will sustain you through that. So, that's one of those great lessons that you see of this this tension of where you see this picture that is put forward of The nation of Israel split half, half the tribes on one mountain, Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing, half the tribes on Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. And just uh, when you take a look at what the census count was of the tribes at the end of the book of Numbers, you'll see that Uh, the number that were on the Mount of Blessing was more than those who were on the Mount of Cursing. So you could visibly look and see, oh, how many people were over here? How many people were on one side or the other side? There were more people on the Mount of Blessing than there were on the land on the Mount of Cursing. So you get a kind of a visual picture. If you were to look here, if you were standing on Ebal or on Gerizim, you could see... Hey, there's more people on Gerizim than there are on Ebal. So that is a visual picture. Hey, uh, there is a big difference between the two. So that's kind of the big view that we're taking a look at here. And so this particular passage that we're looking at today closes out the elaboration on the Ten Commandments. And this is a passage that starts in Deuteronomy, starts in chapter 6. Starts in chapter 6 where we have the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's in chapter 6. And it continues on through chapter 26. As our passage here today started out, it was finishing out that section of elaboration on the Ten Commandments. What do the Ten Commandments, each one of those, mean? When you look under the hood so to speak in the word and deuteronomy explains it moses takes painstaking detail of providing examples of how each one of these things is lived out so that is where this passage we're looking at today starts of ki tavo but as it continues on this passage that we're looking at today also covers a section um so on the tenth commandment there which includes the discussion in Deuteronomy 26 about the first fruits and the third tithe, or the tithe in the third year. That's a special, uh, special things happen with that tithe in the third year as we were reading about there in Deuteronomy 26. And then also in this passage here as it continues on, uh, we are also taking a look at uh, the... um, the command to keep and record these commands because what they are your owner's manual for when you are looking for the reboot if you are seeing yourself in these kinds of situations like the four types of soil described in the parable of the sower and you see that you're in a situation like the rocky soil or the hard road where the seed can't even get started in the ground because it's hard, it won't even get started into it. Which is why, what happens in agricultural country? You do what to the land? You till it, you rip up the hard soil, so what? The roots can get started. Yeah, yes, Deborah, go ahead, please.
1: Um, I remember when I was had first become a Christian and I had read this and I was so distraught, but I was new, and I didn't really understand. And I felt like later on, as I began to mature, I've I realized that these are stages that I, per, you know, I don't know what anybody else feels, but these were stages I went through as I grew to the knowledge of God's word. And then later on, they become stages of where you know it feels like you become stagnant. Like, oh my gosh, I better put something in my soil, you know. And it, um, so I just, um, you know, I'll just never forget thinking. How am I ever going to meet these standards, you know, because sometimes people, you know, sometimes I had thought that that's just, you know, you're one or the other. And then I began to learn that it's, you know, as you know, you're growing up, you think, oh, okay, maybe I'm in stage one, two, three, or four. But that's just my thought. I don't know if anybody else has had that thought.
0: Okay. Kind of go go through through stages of things, but you know there, there are definitely ways that you can also take a look at uh, the particular snares that we may go through. For some of us, you know, prosperity conveniences are not really a snare, but we could also be afraid of persecution. And you see what's happened even in just recent years when people start telling believers, "Oh." You can't go worship. You can't read the Bible. You can't speak the words of the Bible. You can't do this. You can't do that. How do believers respond? Do you do you reach what's talked about in the parable of the sower where suddenly now you reach that hard pan and your roots go down and they stop and so that it starts baking? Up there in the sun, and you cannot get any more moisture, so you wither away because you have no root that's actually connected to moisture in the soil. The things that's the life of the spirit that God is is giving us. So we see also in this particular passage, uh, we're going to be focusing on a bit on uh, the passage that is related to, let's see here, oh yes, and going back to Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Now, when we look at the blessings and the curses that are there, we can see that one of the aspects that Yeshua talks about with a how you, are, um, how you are in the world, if when you say you obey the commands of the Lord, what does that mean? Oh, I obey the commands of the Lord. What then is a question? Show your fruit. What is it resulting in? Like those parable of the sower what is your end result of your life? If you are the plant, the plant that is started, if you're the seed that falls down, you may start to germinate, then what? Dries up. You may not even start getting any starting on your, your growth whatsoever. So that's, that is your fruit. Your fruit is what? Nothing. It doesn't even get started. Or if you're in the rocky ground, you got started, people go, woohoo, all right, look at this plant. It's just sprouting up like this. And then you hit the heat wave. Uh oh, the leaves are starting to shrivel up, starting to droop over. Uh oh, the fruit that may have been on there got burned in the sun. Yes, Christine.
2: I appreciate where the teaching is. I can't help but think about a community, right? So if mm-hmm. we're a we, we will hear and we will obey. When we see our fellow believers that are struggling with heat stroke or lack of water mm. or the lack of the vitamins and nutrients, yes, we have a certain responsibility based on Torah, uh, to come alongside and nurture and lift up shelter and shade. So um, I think that's important as we listen to the teaching to keep that in mind that, yes, that it's re- not just left up to the individual yeah. seed. It is yes. a community and garden.
0: Indeed. So it's a diagnosis of one's own person, but also kind of a looking at the health of your, your whole entire field. Your whole vineyard, your your whole patch of ground that's growing. Uh yes, Daniel, you have your hand up.
2: Okay.
1: Um I uh, also just wanted to say like just like I was talking about a heat wave comes, also like sometimes when you overwater plants too.
0: Mm-hmm. That <laughs> Drown can them.
1: also kill them too. And like how there's can different plants, that? different plants need different amounts of heat or water just like
0: everyone has a different walk too. Hmm. Oh, that's, a, that's a very good observation about the, the drowning. And it is, it is kind of interesting that they, you bring up a very interesting point because that may get a little bit at what uh, the, uh, Solomon gets at when he's talking about uh, do not be under-religious or over-religious on that. Don't be without enough water or with too much water. On that. And we've all seen that what happens where someone can go fully toward a life with God and lose perspective in the process. So that is, that's one of those things that it's, yeah, thank you, Daniel. You bring up a very interesting point because what can that sometimes happen and be a big risk of? We call that burnout. People might get burned out or then turned off to a whole relationship with God in the process. So, yeah, thank you, Danielle. That's a great observation on that. So, some of the other things that we see here um, that in addition to the parable of the sower, which is drawing from in the passage that we were reading there in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. So it's quoting, has a quotation there from Isaiah. But then you see also a passage that that the Apostle Paul is drawing on in his passage of um, Romans 9 through 11. So Romans 9 through 11, which <laughs> just coincidentally, we're taking a look at in our weekly um, Bible class. We've we're just started into Romans chapter 11. We're in verse 7 here in this coming week. But one of the th- the big questions that is in this section of Romans nine through eleven is, "Great, Israel is this beginning of the roots and is part of this thing that God is doing in the earth. Why are so many in Israel not accepting Yeshua as the promised Messiah, the promised anointed one of israel the points that which all of the hebrew scriptures were pointing to what the tabernacle is pointing to all these things are pointing to why is it that so many in israel are just not getting with it and so he's going through this long discussion starting in chapter nine of looking through lots of passages throughout the hebrew scriptures of what the issue was what the issue was and you see it's very similar to what Yeshua pointed out in John, the, the Gospel of John, when he was talking about the bread that came down from heaven. And it's like they ate the man in the wilderness, and then they died because what? It's reflected on also in Hebrews. To the, it, Hebrews and John together talk about this, that they did not combine it with faith or trust, they did not combine it, trust, they took advantage of God, they took the blessings in, and didn't say, okay, happy am I, because I have been blessed, no, they said, is this all we get, this bread, give us meat, give us, we had all kinds of wonderful stuff back there in Mitzrayim, in the house of bondage. Yes. (laughs) That's right. How can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat? Correct. You're always looking for something more. Uh, Yes, Christine, go ahead.
2: Just like in uh, the passage that we read in the Torah portion today, too, I did did not listen, and it's that whole, there's a letter of the law, and then there's the spirit of the law. The weightier matters. You know, in... um, there were righteous, There still are righteous people in Israel and within our Jewish community. There are righteous people that are talking about the Messiah, and we continue to pray for them that they'll see that our rabbi was the Messiah. And, um, you know, we don't give up on them, and we don't use them as a, a springboard other than a lesson to learn, but uh, there are many righteous that continue to seek messiah and one day their eyes will be opened and we are to pray for them in the process
0: indeed which is what the passage that we're taking a look at here today in romans is all about so romans chapter 11 starting we're going to take a look at the first 10 verses in there i say then god has not rejected his people has he may it never be for i too am an Israelite, a descendant of Avraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Eliyahu, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone and left, and they are seeking my life. So that's a quotation there from First Kings chapter nineteen, verses ten and fourteen. So he continues on in, in verse four of Romans chapter eleven. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal from first Kings chapter nineteen, verse eighteen. So Paul continues on. In the same way then, there is also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel, seeking it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened? Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So those are quotations there from Isaiah twenty nine ten, which builds upon that passage earlier that's quoted there in the, in the parable of the sower of Matthew chapter 13. And then also Paul is quoting from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. So we see here a very important lesson that comes from this. The lesson is, don't be like ancient Israel. Be good soil, and this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit. And understanding is not just like a, huh. No, it is a, you hear and you do, and it comes out in your life and you bear good fruits from it. So it's not just as we say, in one ear and out the other. No, it's in one ear and out through your hands, out through your mouth, out through your feet, yes, through all your deeds. Uh, yes, Larry, you have a, a comment or a question over there. Yeah,
3: I was thinking about uh, what you're, you you know, the people, the churches like to g- <clears throat> push you out. doesn't have anything to do with what your works are, it's just all by grace. And I happened upon this verse and I was reading uh, in Matthew by the Messiah. Um, That says, uh, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Then he will give to everyone what they deserve for what they have done. I'm telling you the truth. Well, then he goes on. Talk about the, the, uh, never mind, talking about other things. (laughs) So that was from the Messiah. That wasn't just, you know, something that somebody made up.
0: Indeed. And, you know, right at the the preamble there of the um, Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about, you know, let your light shine before men. Why? So they can see your good works and do what? Get lots of big medals around your neck and go, hey, get your name in the paper and your picture in the paper with a big grin. No. So they will... Give glory to your God in heaven, who's the source of all these good things that you're doing. Yes, uh, Piran, go ahead, please.
1: Well, it reminds me that the Hebrew language is uh, predominantly verb based, yes, so verb it's based. always about what you do, mm-hmm. not necessarily how it's been translated as works. But that you can be like God by looking from what you do like
0: God. Yes, indeed. Uh, Yes, uh, Sean, go ahead, please.
1: One of the things I'm teaching the folks down at the kitchen is that we're not saved by works, but this is a love response. Everything should be done out of a love response. Someone has given to you. Don't be selfish and hold it to yourself and then be greedy and then complain and murmur it wasn't what you wanted or whatever. Wait a minute. You did for me, I want to do for you. I want
3: to reciprocate.
0: Yeah. Thus, it's what the basis of the parable of the sower is heaven plants the seed it grows within us what does the plant do if you're doing it for a crop the point is you're planting it for a crop right so heaven is planting it within us the word is planted with us to do what be ornamental well that serves a purpose that is this crop is beauty but If you're doing it for a particular crop to be able to eat or something like that, it has to produce a crop you can eat. So that is the purpose of the plant as it was planted. So thus, the word that's planted within us grows up and produces the fruit. And as the Apostle Paul brings out in several places, that fruit is good works, as he calls it, the works of the spirit or the fruit of the spirit and that outgrows within us uh yes larry you have a comment or a question
3: that uh, that i've heard made that's kind of cute is that plants don't eat their own fruit either they <laughs> drop it for for which for others
0: yeah that's a that's a great observation so one thing to take a look also in our haftora portion or a parallel passage to kitavo today is in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 22. And one of the things that we see is bad news in Deuteronomy 27, 28. Lots of incredibly bad and ugly news of what can happen when you lose sight of why you were put into the place you were put. Why heaven put Israel there. We've talked about it before that Israel is... Heaven's a life preserver into the world to be there for people that are sinking to grab onto. Now, if there are parts of Israel that don't get with that plan, then as Paul puts it, you prune them off, graft others onto the tree that the Lord is planting. But it is there to be the life preserver for the world. To save the world. So, saving Israel as an ongoing body to be a lifeline to the world is what Israel's purpose is. And the Mashiach or the Messiah, the Christ, is the essential portion of how that life preserver works in the world, how it stays afloat, so to speak. You're going to keep beating this metaphor to its end. But That is what is important of why it should be there to sustain. So, Isaiah 60 is saying, okay, bad news, because Isaiah, again, is prophesying to whom? People in exile. So, what we read about in Deuteronomy 27, 28, that has happened. That thing of the ugly stuff that happens during a siege that happened during the destruction of the Babylon, or destruction of Jerusalem, by Babylon in that particular time. They were doing that kind of things. That was an abomination of desolation at that time. Now that would happen again to Jerusalem, by Rome in AD70. That would happen again. And you would have a more horrific things happening inside the city that we're under a siege like that. So when you're in the reverberations of it or in the midst of this, this judgment coming down, this big correction that's happening to Israel to hit the reset button again on Israel, all right, what do you do about it? And that is part of what Isaiah chapter 60 is referring to, this restoration the rebooting process of Israel back to its manufacturer's specifications. So, one of the things that this particular passage is usually read, it's the sixth of seven parallel passages that are read uh, following the fast of Av, or the fifth month, which is commemoration of the um, destructions of the temple, both Babylon, and Rome, same day on the Hebrew calendar, um, hundreds of years apart. But this is talking about destruction and restoration. One of the, the things that comes about in this is that there is a redemption that happens. Arise and shine, for your light has come. And this has long been seen to be a messianic prophecy. Messianic prophecy that arise, shine, your light has come. And those who hope to see the light will cling on to it and hope for it. Remnant, a remnant of Israel will cling on to that, hope for that, that that would happen. So thus, when you get to the Gospels, you start seeing those people who were clinging on for that hope. You see that in the temple. They're in Luke's account of it, in the first couple of chapters of Luke, where you see Yeshua's parents going into the temple, and they meet some people who were hoping. This is now, what, four or five generations later? Still hoping. That generations of hope, still hoping that this light would start shining out brightly in Israel. So thus, when you see that there is a couple of uh, prophets who were there in the temple, very old at that particular time, yes, Anna, they were hoping for it. And when they were given the message from heaven, yes, your hope has come. And this is the one through whom it was going to come. So they said, yeah, now you've shown your salvation. So now I can go on to rest because now I've seen the hope of your salvation. They hoped against hope, and their salvation was coming. So in a very similar way, that our exiles, just like when we commemorate every Passover time, that our (laughs) our move away from God is very similar to the exiles that happened for Israel. But Passover time is like you are confined. You are in the house of bondage. You are now being freed. Go out of your house of bondage. Go to freedom. But the thing is, is that we can go out of our house of bondage, but where are we going? That's why it's a passage from Egypt, House of Bondage, to the mountain. The mountain where you meet God. You get the testimonies of God. God reveals Himself, who He is, what He expects, what He's all about, what He's trying to do, why you are freed. You know, one of the things that we can often do is get them backwards. You expect people first here is god here's everything he demands then if you go through all that then you get freed so you sometimes can get those mixed up and backwards where you get freed first then introduced to god so that's one of the things that sean was talking about earlier with these people who are really wanting to be freed down there in downtown santa rosa but you have The strongholds that have held them, either substances, relationships, even just a combination of so many things that are coming upon them that are keeping them chained. They need the bondage breaker to come to free them. You know, then, then you see you're free to be able to truly understand who god is and you see that as we've been going through the torah up all the to this point here and now coming to the end of deuteronomy we've seen it freed out of egypt what they all became phds in theology no they what kept wanting to go back want to go back take us back even start in rebellions we're going to form new leaders we don't like this guy who keeps taking us out he is wants to take us back so the thing is is that that pull back to wanting to go back into the house of bondage was what you did not as it says at the end of the passage we read here today they did not have a heart They've been taken out, but they did not have a heart to really understand what is going on. they would heard a lot of stuff, a lot of vibrations were bouncing on their tympanic membrane, but it was jiggling a whole lot of those bones within their ears and sending messages into their brain, but was it actually then coming through into their heart? To their mind, than through into their life. Yes, Alex, uh, go ahead, please. I've always been a believer that uh, freedom is
3: just nothing left to lose. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you break out of your house of bondage, you may just be in a tent, and then what? You got nothing. Yeah, you know, and then it it won't. It's not a good long term plan either to have nothing.
0: Yeah, which is one of the, the great spiritual lessons that we do every single year when we go around to uh, Sukkot time period, or the Feast of Tabernacles. It is a reminder, remember how your ancestors dwelled in tents, dwelled in temporary shacks as they were moving from the house of bondage to the land of rest. Remember that. That is the condition all of us go through from our house of bondage to our land of freedom that we are moving through. As Paul puts it, we are in these tents. When we're in these tents, we groan, wanting to be into a permanent dwelling place, but we're just in these tents called our bodies now. And to realize how vulnerable and really susceptible to everything we are in these tents until... We get to the place where we can truly have rest. But as Yeshua puts it, fear not the one who can destroy these tents, destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. Take them both out. And as you see, like in the book of Revelation, he says, now that's the second death where he tosses that into the lake of fire so death then is gone so that whole way of life the way of life that we think is just normal everything gone and that old way of life with the sin the deck the disease decay death separation anxiety all of those things passed away yeah so that's one of the blessings that we have um, did someone have a question here before I go on any further? Okay. Great. So, one of the things that <laughs> it's not without reason that uh, those of us who believe in Yeshua as the Messiah see him as the one who can put both the physical and the spiritual exile of God's people, put an end to that so that it truly comes to an end. That we who are just going about into the world can truly find a permanent home. And as it continues on, this is an enlightening passage, in, uh, this passage in Isaiah. And when we are looking at this passage in Matthew chapter, um, let's see here, Matthew, oh yes, that's right. One of the things i was looking to get at is that this particular passage in isaiah chapter 60 is and also referred to in isaiah chapter 9 is something that's seen as a messianic prophecy but one of the things that you'll see it referred to like this is a passage from the jewish study bible which is a traditional jewish reference by those who do not believe that yeshua is the messiah They would say that this passage here in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 6 is describing an ideal future ruler, in other words, the Messiah. So these passages that we've seen in Matthew chapter 13 and Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 60, referring to Messianic prophecies, these are elements of who the Messiah actually is not just some ruler who's going to come across, but something much, much, much more. So we see here is a passage from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, which is going to be quoting from this passage in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Now, when Yeshua had heard that Yochanan had been living, uh, was taken into custody, he withdrew into the Galil, Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken of through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Yarden, the Galil of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a great light dawned. From that time, Yeshua began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So one of the things that we see in this particular passage is that this is, when we see the land, you might note here that Naphtali and (laughs) Zebulun are in this area that is northeast or northwest of the Sea of Galilee, otherwise known as Kinneret in in the Hebrew Scriptures. So when people were challenging Yeshua and saying, "Hey, go and check, see that no prophet comes from the Galilee; it comes from Galilee." Indeed, yes. The prophet does come from Zebulun and Naphtali, indeed, and would bring a great light to the nations. Because remember, when we read the Gospels, on the western shore were all of you could say descendants of Israel and the tribes. Nazareth or Nazareth is on the western side. Capernaum is on the north side of it, but the eastern shore of the Galilee—that's what we call the Decapolis area, the region of the ten cities. That was a um, Hellenistic outpost, you might say. That was like Greece outside of Greece. That was there. And so you see like the, the passage where it was that Yeshua drove the spirit out of the ha- the herd of pigs and they ran down the, the, the um, hill and went right into the Sea of Galilee, into the lake. That was on the eastern shore of it. That's why they were raising pigs over there is because that was a thing that was fine in Greek culture over on that side. So you see that this great light came both onto the western shore of Galilee, to Zebulun, to Naphtali, to Issachar, which is where Nazareth is, and also to the nations, which is on the east side of the Galil, of that Galilee lake. So you see that that is indeed what the prophet said that the prophet the messiah would be coming to that particular region and that light would go out both to israel and to the nations of that particular time period and to those in between otherwise known as samaria to samaria those that were a culturally Somewhat of a, a mixture of the nations and of Israel. That's why they were called the half breeds of the time period, because in between the time of the exiles, um, one of the practices of the conquering nations would be that they would take the inhabitants of the country they would conquer, move them somewhere else, and take other residents and move them in. Why would they do that? We call it nationalism. They're fighting against nationalism because you are moved out of the area where you're in. Where is your allegiance? You say, hey, this is my homeland. No, it's not because you're no longer in your homeland anymore. You're hundreds of miles away from your homeland now. Uh, Yes, Christine, go ahead.
2: I'm so glad you brought that up. I was just thinking about um, how even when Israel was dispersed into Babylon, and um, how there was a remnant that would uh, created those Hebraic prayers and what they call uh, the practice of the heart. They were like, even though we're in Babylon and we're learning different cultures and ways, they tried to bring them together and keep the the, the prayers and uh, the, the service of the heart. And that's where some of the Amadan prayers and some of the, Uh, Hebraic, uh, the Hebrew prayers were created that even though they were trying to, uh, the conquering nations were trying to assimilate them, there were a remnant of uh, Sadiq men that said, no, we've got to try to keep these ways and return our our hearts to God and to do right and to teach our young and to follow the way of Torah. And we're so grateful uh, that they continued to do that and bring us some... Beautiful prayers. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to say that um, they fought. There was always a remnant that fought and took the lessons and realized and repented and practiced mm-hmm. uh, teshuva and yeah. wanted to get their hearts right.
0: Yeah, one of the things when we talk about with our the tradition of the Shema and praying towards Jerusalem is in really the practice of those who are in exile. And we see it written specifically. The prophet Daniel. And that was a part of what uh when he was told to basically put up or shut up with his practices, he did not shut up. Nope. Even when they they basically did use subterfuge to come in with the national law to basically say, you continue to worship God, you know, you're not just going you're not just getting a fine, you're not just going to jail. No, this is execution here. This is a capital crime that you were doing. But still, what did he do? Opened his window toward Jerusalem and was praying. He knew what was coming next. He knew exactly what was coming next. But for him, as he told the king later, hey, the God I serve He created the lions. And he can shut the lion's mouths if he wants to. And as his friends will later say, well, when they were facing a furnace to be thrown into, even if he kills us, still we're going to serve him. Because we know that he's the one that created all things like this. So, like what Yeshua is saying, they did not fear. The end of the body because there was something even greater because they had trust that the one whom they were serving could restore them from the dead and that it was not as some people would say a life wasted it was a life lived well A life lived extremely well. And those who have gone before us in horrific ways, both modern and ancient, when they have gone to their deaths with that kind of trust, you know, they have shown us what life is truly worth living for. And there are things when people say, is it worth dying for? Yes, it is, actually. So we face some things that are tough tough decisions that put us up against either being ostracized by our family or friends, facing problems at work, facing problems from government, fines, prison, etc., etc. So all of us face those things. But when we look at this and the blessings and the curses there in Deuteronomy 27, 28, or puts it in pretty stark black and white picture between it to say yes it can be that incredibly bad so if it gets that bad where are you going to put your trust and as we have a guide with the parable of the sower where do we put our trust where is the soil of our hearts? Is it rototilled? Is it made deep topsoil? Is it weeded? Has heaven gone through and weeded it? So, are we then able, when the seed of the word is planted within us, that we grow up, our roots grow deep, and we just keep going, whether it's a heat wave? or whatever comes up around us. We can just go on and do and bear the crop that heaven has set out for us to bear. So that's a wonderful blessing that we have here today. Any other last thoughts as we close out? Oh, yes, uh, Christine and Larry, go ahead, please.
2: Well, I wonder if the conditions in Revelation will apply to us as well, right? So if there's been a pattern of prophecy because of the Hebrew mindset, is cyclical, right? Just like our mm. feasts are. And so what's been done has been done before and will be done again.
0: Mm. And
2: so I think even, uh, I don't know the exact address in the scriptures, but where it's through standing, through Yeshua, that we can stand and be overcomers in the day of in the end times. Yes. And that's um
0: more than conquerors even. More
2: than conquerors even. Yes.
3: Thank you. Amen. Yes, Larry. I'm thinking about um Nebuchadnezzar. As brutal as his as his as his um uh reputation is God did call him his servant and it seems like he was lighter on the Israelites than other than than other kings, other conquerors were, because he he brought them in, saw their their usefulness, and put them in the into power in his government. And he apparently after after that thing of being duped by his that wasn't really his idea. That was his uh, his his um co whoever his advisor's idea, yes. and um and uh and then he got eventually knew who Jehovah was. Yeah. But he got, he got, he got, had to go out in the wilderness and suffer. But he actually eventually wrote that thing and said, I know who the king of the universe is now. You know, essentially saying, it's not me after all. It's this, it's the God of the, of the, of the Jews. And then he, and then his son was one that left them go, let them go back, right?
0: Uh, under, under a different empire. They had, they yeah, because they had to lose out to the uh, the Persians who came in, um, and it was it was you know just just kind of sad when you when you see the the legacy. Yeah, yes, Nebuchadnezzar had that, but it didn't go to his son. His son just was a decadent partier, and literally partied his empire right into He's the, got the, into the, the ground. ground. Yes, they, they got the, writing, the handwriting on the wall. And as they were partying, their conquerors were literally marching right in underneath their gates, uh, right through the uh, the river. Oh,
3: the Medes, I guess then. Right? Yes,
0: came right in. And there, it's again, you could see that God grabbed a hold also, Through the same prophet, (laughs) he was there. Now, imagine this, when you talk about the favor of God, that usually if you were going to come in with an empire, you wipe out everybody in the administration. Why? Um, You see what happens when you get people who um, stay in power in places. They can work against you and end up thwarting everything you want to do so thus the common practice is to come and clean everybody out in an administration so you can put all your people in to do your ways well god had so much favor upon daniel that he stayed through you know trying to remember i think it was like four different uh rulers Two of which were Babylon, two to three, if you see different points of history as to co regents at the time when Nebuchadnezzar was out eating grass, um, but then also a couple under uh, the Medo Persian Empire, which then, you know, having the favor, then under a subsequent administration with people of the same influence, were then the edict to go rebuild, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and pay for it. Yes, and pay for it. Something also that was uh, paid for, Rome did the building up of the the second temple as well. So it's one of those things that you can see that there are some times in history where you have a, a pharaoh who knows Joseph, so to speak, and a pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph. And you see that... Uh, what can happen in the favor that's bestowed upon the land for one and the curses that come down (laughs) under the ruler that does not and works against. So thus, it's uh, a great, great picture for us to say, hey, people who may not totally get it will still see, hey, God is working. God is working there. We should at least... um, hold out hope and hold out um, support and at least pay attention to what's going on there. And you see later on that came to be known as God-fearers as you get down into the apostolic time periods. Cornelius, a centurion in Roman Empire, not a schlock position, yet he was well known for his... uh, allegiance to the god of israel now when you think of the roman empire and if you read anything about the roman empire israel was given a special dispensation to not worship the emperor everybody else boy they cracked the whip it was harsh punishment if you did not worship the empire and that emperor worship escalated and de-escalated over time but it was pretty strict now, for a centurion to be well known, to have so much deference to a different God, wow. Talk about favor. Talk about favor. So, when you see that when Cornelius shows up at Kepha's doorstep, you know, Spirit's telling him, hey, go with him. His God's at work here. Pay attention. So thus you can see other people, the of the nations, say, hey, God is at work here, drawn closer and closer. So thus you see that great promise that the, uh, King Solomon had at the inauguration of the temple, that, hey, this would be a house of prayer for all nations. And then that great prophecy there of the day of the Lord, where all nations would flow then again, up to the house of the Lord to learn who God is, who, who the real ruler of the world is, where the real true source of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding comes from. So, I mean, may that happen very quickly and in our lifetime. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship, if you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at halel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O, Hallel.info.